Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and one of the hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. Today I'm speaking with Nicholas Versalis, who's assistant professor in political philosophy at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And also this year, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Faculty Fellow at the Center for Human Values at Princeton. We're discussing his book, The Political Philosophy of G.A. Cohen, Back to Socialist Basics, out from Bloomsbury in 2015. In the book, Rosales engages in a thorough reconstruction of a unified approach to thinking through G.A. Cohen's political philosophy. Rosales traces various different strands of Cohen's work, from his Marxism to his work on distributive justice and in other areas of moral and political philosophy, to work on exploitation, the market, and socialism. The result is a fascinating critical engagement with this important thinker, and ultimately it also enables one to get a sense of the debates that Cohen is engaged in and the arguments of his interlocutors, people like Rawls and Dworkin, Sen, and many others. Ultimately, the book, and I hope this interview, offers a new, fresh approach to addressing and engaging with the work of G.A. Cohen, and, as Rosales argues, also Cohen's method, his polemical method of imminent critique, and engaging and questioning one's own principles and positions. I highly urge everybody to go out and get their hands on a copy of this book. Um, It's an important read. It's a challenging read. uh, It's an impressive in the way that Priscillus is able to, on the one hand, uh, view Cohen's work as a whole, and on the other hand, trace the various threads and oftentimes tensions within Cohen's overall project. The result is something that challenges us to rethink our own beliefs about the market, about fairness, freedom, equality, uh, socialism, in philosophical thought, and also in our contemporary political moment. I hope you enjoy the interview. Joining me now is Nicholas Versalis, Assistant Professor in Political Philosophy at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and also this year the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Faculty Fellow at the Center for Human Values at Princeton. He's also the author of The Political Philosophy of G.A. Cohen, Back to Socialist Basics, out from Bloomsbury in 2015. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, it was, uh, we were talking about before, a pleasure to read the book and really kind of approach Cohen in this very kind of comprehensive way. So I'm looking forward yeah. uh, to the conversation. And to start, I'll ask you the, the traditional question here on the podcast, and that is, if you could tell us some about your academic background and how you came to write this book, and perhaps also some about what it was like to work with Cohen. Sure, yeah. Um, I studied... Um economics as an undergrad, and then uh, I decided at some point I wanted to shift to philosophy. I was interested in Marxism, and so I went uh, I went to Oxford to study with Cohen, who had 
published a very influential text in 1978 on Marxist theory of history. And uh, that's where I encountered uh, the rich world of uh, moral and political philosophy. And this brought me to where I am now, which is um, uh, working on uh, things in, the, in this conceptual vicinity. So uh, Marxism, uh, theories of exploitation, theory of exploitation, theories of power, theories of inequality, and so on. And uh, so eventually, while I was a graduate student, I worked with, with Cohen, with Jerry, as most people who knew him uh, called him. You know, there were two, there were two Cohens. There was the, <laughs> um, the G.A. Cohen, who was the formidable and, uh, you know, very, very tough um, analytic philosopher that everyone met in the seminar room. And then there was Jerry, Jerry Cohen, who was the person who was out, outside the seminar room, who was a very funny, very approachable, very humane human being. Uh, so anyway, I worked with Jerry and uh, uh, when Jerry passed in 2009, I experienced it as a sort of existential necessity that that I would put together something that uh, combines the analytical um, approach to philosophy that uh, Jerry taught me with uh, an attempt to bring together and unite all the, the disparate strands of Cohen's philosophy into one uh, unified uh, narrative. Sure. And now, why, the- why for you then was it important to, as you said, have kind of approach kind of the unity of Cohen's thought? I mean, what about that particular project was so important for you? Yeah, part of the reason, part of the reason, of course, is um, uh, psychological for me. I wanted to, as it were, um, uh, sort out the ideas that were in my head, not just vis-a-vis, not, not just vis-a-vis Cohen's thought, but also where I myself stood vis-a-vis Cohen's political philosophy and, uh, you know, his extremely influential writings on equality, fraternity, Marx, exploitation, power, and so on. Uh, but also what's important here is that Cohen himself didn't uh, see himself as putting together uh, a large, a massive philosophical edifice like uh, Kant or, or Hegel or Rawls uh, or Marx. He didn't think of himself as a as a system builder. He thought of himself more as a, as a critic, and that made for a brilliant set of uh, polemical essays and books that he published throughout his life. But he never really attempted to bring them together into a unified whole. And that's what the book tries to do. I would say it does so um, quite successfully. And as we get into the book, you you introduce Cohen's overall project um, by terming it as a secular egalitarian theodicy. So could you tell us what you mean by framing Cohen in that way and how doing so helps us think through the broader unity of his work? Sure, yeah. Uh, Cohen inherits from uh, the from German idealism the, the philosophy of of Kant, Hegel, Kant and Hegel, and also uh, from Marxist materialism this idea that um, this rather commitment to uh, a fully free and fully emancipated humanity, uh, and uh, inherits also from it um, this notion that. Um, 
humanity has to go through a set of stages that involve suffering and pain before it can reach the stage of full emancipation. And so this is important because it is through this kind of theodicy or theodicial, if you like, motif that Cohen arrives at his Marxism. His Marxism is the Marxism of the Second International, which consists in the idea that uh, social change is determined by uh, changes in technology. And as technology develops and grows, so do um, social relations and uh, uh, what, what Marxists call the relations of production, that is relations of power in society. And so um, humanity has to undergo uh, this, go through this capitalist veil of tears, as he calls it, this period of suffering and exploitation and domination before it can get to, to, to the fully emancipated stage of socialism. And there is clearly here a slightly theological motif that Marx inherited from Hegel and the Marxist tradition inherits from uh, from Marx. Sure. Now, you mentioned it a bit earlier, but I want to kind of focus on a little more about how much of Cohen's work takes the form of polemical arguments with other major political philosophers. So in discussing that in the introduction, you talk about his kind of polemical argumentative strategy in terms of a, what you call an imminent approach to political philosophy. Could you explain mm -hmm. what that means for us? Sure, yeah. I think uh, this is very important, not just because uh, it helps us understand Cohen's work better, but also it's helpful for students of philosophy to understand this method better. And it's clearly the method that many 19th century philosophers used and thought was productive for, 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 uh, for writing and doing philosophy. So an imminent argument is simply an argument that grants um, an opponent's premises and works from these premises to conclusions that the opponent cannot accept or cannot accept costlessly. Um, and I say that this practice of imminent critique is very, very helpful because it, it, it sort of hoists the opponent with their own pattern. Um, so it, it, um, it destroys the citadel from within, as it were. And Cohen, of course, utilized that method in all the main debates he was engaged in, in his Marxism, in his critique of Nozick's uh, attempt to justify private property, in his polemic with Rawls and, uh, um, and uh, equality and egalitarianism. Uh, but also, crucially, this is uh, the method that um, Karl Marx relies on when he uh, criticizes political economy. Das Kapital is called, uh, is subtitled, The Critique of Political Economy. And that text sets out by granting uh, its opponents, namely the, 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 the partisans of, of uh, classical political economy, all their assumptions and going from there to conclusions that they cannot costlessly accept. Right. And I mean, something kind of implicit in that, at least to me, when I was reading your work, and I suppose this is true of Cohen's as well, is that, you know, not only can one read this book that you've written and understand Cohen a lot better, but they also learn new things about Nozick and Dworkin and Rawls and Sen and these other thinkers as well, which is, I think, of great benefit um, right. in engaging the book. Right. Yeah, I think, well, precisely because, as I said, 
Cohen wasn't a system builder. He was more a reactive kind of thinker. It was much... Uh, his, his, his habit was to pick up on a, on a theory, an influential theory, which he thought or felt was mistaken, and then try relentlessly to bring it down, but bring it down um, not by creating uh, scarecrow arguments and, and, you know, weak opposition. Cohen was, was quite famous for raising objections to his own views that which were much stronger than objections that his, than he, stronger than, than, than objections his opponents raised against him. And that's something important for, for, for students of philosophy to, to, to do as well, in my opinion. You know, the stronger the opposition to your argument, the stronger your argument if it succeeds in refuting them. Certainly. Now, one last uh, bit of the introduction I'd like to ask you about, and that is uh, Cohen's, as you put it, small c conservatism. Mm. And in your view, that uh, that. That, that that aspect of Cohen's thinking is necessarily related to his egalitarianism. Now, why is that in your view? So, uh, towards the end of his life, Cohen experienced the need to develop uh, and defend a kind of disposition that he had, uh, not in matters of justice, but in matters of everyday life. He, he called himself a small-c conservative. Um, the in the sense, perhaps in the human sense, that he didn't want, you know, he didn't want m much, much change in his everyday life. Uh, he 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 had this habit. He used to to say this um, that he agreed with Wittgenstein. I don't mind what I eat as long as it's always the same. <laughs> and um, and so one of his essays, this essay, uh, rescuing conservatism from the, from the conservatives. Uh, defends certain kinds of value, what he calls um, particular value, for example. And my interpretation of Cohen's defense of conservatism, which has been recently published in a wonderful volume by, edited by Michael Otsuka, is that he, he experienced this need to defend uh, conservatism, small c conservatism, non-political conservatism, as a kind of compensating differential for his radicalism. That is, if you have a very demanding um, theory of equality, if you think, as Cohen thought, that no differences in people's circumstances, that is, no differences in social class, in uh, social background, in education, or even in um, talents and uh, uh, What's sometimes called personal resources, uh, your IQ or your um, your uh, congenital capacities. If you think that none of these are the proper basis for inequality, and you think that any and all of differences and any and all the differences of this form uh, are proper grounds for compensation, uh, then you know it's very likely that you want to experience. To, you, you it will be very difficult for you to to lead your life without constantly nagging yourself about, oh, you know, uh, this is unjust, this is unfair, this should be redistributed, this should be compensated, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, naturally, um, uh, he came to the view that at least some areas of 
of my everyday life uh, should be somehow protected from the exigencies of the of justice. Right now, let's perhaps move into kind of the bulk of the the book itself. And I would just mark for for the listeners that the way you've organized the book is to, in each chapter, kind of engage a, a major topic or major area um, of Cohen's thought and then kind of really uh, engage in kind of this exegesis of his work, especially as it plays out in various polemics. So I'll try to mark that um, as we make our way through the conversation. And in the first chapter, um, you're engaging Cohen's historical materialism. And so uh, there's there's something interesting about Cohen's materialism that you're uh, that you're kind of I think picking up on in a very expressively I mean intelligent way, and that is that it's a kind of old fashioned materialism. So maybe yeah. if I could ask you both I mean, why Cohen's uh, technological materialism is old fashioned, but also why that's the kind of theory that he develops. Yes. So. Technological materialism, as I said, is the, the old-fashioned, it's old-fashioned in the, in the sense that it's the view of the Marx, it's the Marxism of the Second International. The Second International, it, in case, in case uh, listeners need some refreshing of their, their, their historical memory in this matter, the Second International was um, the biggest federation of socialist parties in Europe at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, uh, the biggest figures of European social democracy were members of the Second International. Kautsky, Bernstein, Mehring, Bebel, all these people who were either, either sat at Marx's feet or Engels's feet um, were defended this form of materialism. So in that sense, it's old-fashioned. And what that materialism maintains is that there's a tripartite distinction um, that ought to be drawn if we want to explain what explains what in historical uh, development. Uh, and that's, this tripartite distinction is the one between productive forces, roughly technology, uh, relations of production, roughly uh, relations of power in society, and superstructure, roughly the state and the law. And the claim, the explanatory claim that these people affirmed uh, uh, was that the productive forces explained the relations of production, and then the relations of production explained the superstructure. This is the, the characteristic mark of the Marxism of the Second International, and this is the Marxism that Cohen defends. Uh, but what Cohen, but of course, Cohen adds a couple of things to this. First of all, his 1978 book, Karl Marx's Theory of History and Defense, is the first attempt ever by an, an analytical philosopher to defend um, uh, the Marxism of the Second International uh, rigorously and give it a, a rigorous formulation. And secondly, he enlists uh, a number of uh, techniques from biology and, um, uh, you know, um, scientific a number of, of methods used in uh, mainstream science, he enlists them uh, for the purposes of um, provi providing Marxism, as he, as he puts it, with micro-foundations. 
right now we could i imagine have a a whole hour-long conversation just about his materialism and the and the way you reconstruct it in the book but perhaps kind of pick out one particular aspect of it uh one of the moves that cohen makes is is the claim that productive forces have an autonomous tendency to develop throughout history. Could you perhaps kind of explicate uh, that claim from Cohen as you understand it? Yeah, so this is a fundamental premise in the argument for the explanatory primacy of the productive forces over the relations of production, that is, of technology over power relations. And um, this premise, Cohen calls, calls it the development thesis. And a development thesis, which, as you as you put it, maintains that um, the productive forces develop autonomously. Um, rather, they have uh, an autonomous tendency to develop. Um, follows from certain claims about, according to Cohen, uh, human rationality. So the idea is that if people find themselves in a situation of scarcity, and if in this situation, they can improve their own lot by improving um, their tools or by improving their know-how so that they can extract a bigger surplus from the land, for, from, for example, uh, they will tend to do so. And Cohen further claims that not only is this a priori claim true about all rational beings whenever and wherever situated, um, but also uh, it is borne out by um, the historical data. Uh, he thinks that the, there is plenty of empirical evidence to show that uh, the productive forces have developed throughout history, and this is what explains relations of power rather than vice versa. Of course, these are all controversial claims, some of which have been ex, ex, uh, you know, ex, uh, explicitly and extensively um, discussed and uh, rebutted by other philosophers and also by historians. Right. Um, as we move on to chapter two, where you uh, engage the concept of freedom in Cohen's work, uh, why is it that, as you claim in the chapter, Cohen's theory of freedom helps kind of bridge Cohen's Marxism with his normative political philosophy? Yeah, that's a great, um, great question. So one of the main uh, axiological, let's say, uh, or, or evaluative aspects of Cohen, Cohen's Marxism is to understand, and of course this is, this is, prevalent not only in, in Cohen's work, of course, is uh, also Hegel and, and Marx, is to understand what freedom is and how freedom develops throughout history. So, um, in, in a number of his early Marxist works, uh, writings, Cohen explicitly mentions uh, freedom as a uh, basic motivation for his uh, he's trying to defend historical materialism. It's, a, um, it's an attempt to unearth the historical presuppositions of the culmination of human freedom that is supposed to arrive when socialism um, overcomes capitalism. Now, 
Cohen says explicitly that once he had published Karl Marx's theory of history, he felt um, he felt a sense of liberation. He had the sense that uh, it was now up to him to um, work on these evaluative or axiological presuppositions of his uh, theory of history, uh, or rather these um, uh, topics that motivated his discussion of Marx. And this is what he proceeds to do in response to numerous objections <laughs> raised against his reconstruction of Marx uh, after 1978. So between 78 and uh, I'd say 1993, 1994, Cohen spends most of his time thinking about freedom, how this connects with Marxism, and how it also connects with other debates uh, in contemporary political philosophy, including debates that claim against Marxism that um, private property is justified. Right, and even some up of uh, kind of in tandem with the critique of private property is also a critique by Cohen um, of money in this right. uh, effort to, as you say, as you put it on page 39, rescue the idea of freedom from appropriation by the pro-capitalist right. So maybe even before we get into the critique of private property, could you walk us a bit through Cohen's critique of money and the implications of that for the concept of freedom? Yeah. Cohen discusses money in connection with uh, what I think is a brilliant, imminent, again, critique of um, Isaiah Berlin. So the critique is imminent because Cohen grants his opponent, in this case Berlin, his premise, namely the liberal idea that freedom just is um, the absence of external interference with action. It's uh, absence of external impediment uh, to doing what you might want to do. Cohen grants this premise, but unlike um, many liberals like Berlin and like, for that matter, John Rawls, Cohen says that even on this claim, it does not follow that money does not even on the on the this so-called negative conception of freedom, it does not follow that money does not deprive people of freedom. That is, uh, lack of money does not deprive you of um, uh, freedom. As uh, sorry, money does deprive you of freedom. As uh, unlike what what these liberals maintain. So, for example. Um, Rawls thinks that to lack money is a bit like um, like the lack of wings, for instance, right? So to lack wings is not to lack freedom to fly. It's merely to lack the means to fly. By the same token, Rawls and sometimes and some of his moods Berlin claim that to lack money is not to lack freedom to uh, buy to buy stuff um, it's merely lack of means and so what Cohen does in this context is uh, question this uh, inference he uh, points out that when you go out into some store to buy a, to buy a sweater um, you're if you lack money 
and you just try to remove the the uh, item of consumption from the shelf, you will normally be subject to interference by the store owner or by their uh, um, the police or by some private uh, security agency and so on. So to lack money is to lack freedom, even on the liberal conception of freedom, says Cohen. And this has important implications for how we should see uh, and approach poverty, even if we stick to a very narrow and uh, um, traditional, let's say, account of freedom. Certainly, and that's a particularly kind of vivid example of Cohen's method of, of eminent critique and, and, the, and the power of that kind of argument. And right. there's another argument that you're going over in this chapter, and that is Cohen's argument with Nozick. Um, and here, yeah. could you walk us through the way that Cohen ends up claiming um, in against no, Nozick uh, that private property uh, constitutes a restriction of freedom? Yes, so Cohen arrives arrives at his critique of um, Nozick through a, a slightly convoluted path because originally what Cohen is concerned with is to show that on the liberal conception of on the negative conception of freedom that I just mentioned, uh, private property restricts freedom. So you know, uh, on the conception of freedom. To the to on the conception of freedom, which maintains that I'm free uh, if and only if I'm not subject to or liable to external interference. Um, Cohen points out that if I pitch my tent in your backyard, I'll normally be liable to interference. You'll call the police, or you'll interfere with me, and so on. So Cohen maintains that private property is just is a distribution of freedom and non-freedom in the negative sense. Now, in light of this objection, um, many liberals, uh, sometimes called libertarians, the subset of liberals uh, who call themselves libertarians, they respond that this isn't the right conception of freedom. Freedom is not about liability to interference, freedom is about what rights people have. So they respond by moralizing the conception, the relevant conception of freedom. And so what Cohen does in response to that is he asks what kind of right is that and what are its contents? I mean, why is private property, to take, to take the standard case, not a form of theft? And a lot of Cohen's uh, work after 1992-93, after Marxism begins to recede and his interests in uh, mainstream moral and political philosophy begin to come to the fore, consists in actually buttressing this claim that private property is uh, a form of theft. Thank you. Now, if, if we turn now to chapter three, uh, you kind of really dig into this question of, of equality through, in my reading at least, kind of uh, three of Cohen's different polemics. So um, maybe we can kind of take them one by one. And the first of these 
is uh, is a question on how, how does Cohen's um, debate with Dworkin on the pattern of justice kind of help illuminate uh, Cohen's theory? Yeah, what I'll do is uh, maybe I'll just say a little bit more about the theft bit. Sure. Uh, because because it connects nicely with, uh, with your question about equality. So... Um, Cohen wants to reappropriate this slogan, Proudhon's slogan that private property is theft. And in order to, to develop this and buttress this claim, we need a theory, Cohen claims, uh, of the just distribution of stuff. We need a theory of what counts as justice in the distribution of uh, um, the objects of the external world. And so... Once um, the uh, Nozickian, let's say the, the, the advocate of um, uh, libertarianism has raised this moralized, um, has rather um, uh, broached this moralized conception of freedom, the conception of freedom that's founded on rights, the, the, um, the socialist needs to come up with an alternative theory of what rights we have to chunks of the external world. And so the debate on egalitarianism and on, uh, on the nature of distributive justice is crucial for Cohen because it's crucial for um, vindicating his opposition to, uh, to the libertarian. It's a, uh, we need, if we're egalitarians, we need a, a, an alternative theory of distribution. And so this is what Cohen's uh, theory of equality does um, in the in mid nineteen end of the nineteen eighties and mid nineteen nineties, Cohen develops this theory around, along with Ronald Dworkin uh, and some other philosophers uh, like Richard Arneson uh, that la later came to be called luck egalitarianism. Uh, I won't say very much about this, save for uh, specifying the theory. The theory says that a distribution of chunks of the external world, of external resources, is just if and only if it reflects nothing but um, differences in responsibility or choice. And that theory has pretty radical implications in all kinds of dimensions. Uh, I also think it backfires against Cohen, but maybe this is a topic for another time. Hmm. So... If that's kind of one aspect of uh, of Cohen's theory of distributive justice, there's also the issue of what the metric of justice is to be. And yeah. here it seems to me that Cohen's response is a response, on the one hand, to utilitarians, as many engaged in these debates um, are responding to. Mm -hmm. Then it's also a response to Amartya Sen's um, capabilities approach. So what's Cohen's kind of critique, particularly of Sen in this debate? Yes. So when we talk about metrics, so the, the, the issue here is what is it that egalitarians should be concerned to distribute? And utilitarians uh, normally maintain that uh, egalitarians should be concerned to equalize either uh, people's 
uh, utility or welfare, however that's measured uh, uh, in, um, in objective terms or subjective terms or in terms of preferences and so on. Um, Amartya Sen famously criticizes utilitarians because Sen claims, and I think he's right and Cohen also thinks he is right, that utilitarians are, are exclusively concerned with what goods do to people, where, and especially not just what goods do to people, but what goods do to people's mental states, their um, states of welfare or, or psychological states uh, in general. Whereas uh, Sen maintains that we should be interested and concerned with what people can do with goods. So we shouldn't be fetishistic about welfare. We should um, think about and be concerned with what people can do with goods as opposed to what goods do to people. Cohen agrees with this, but he also maintains that um, Sen's view is too monistic. That is, um, there is this, uh, this uh, famous example that Tiny Tim example that's uh, being used in this debate. So Tiny Tim from Dickens's um, Christmas Carol. Tiny Tim, um, Sen says, Tiny Tim uh, has a sunny disposition. So even if he, he's disabled, but he has a sunny disposition. So even he, if he's provided, even if he's not provided with a wheelchair, he still has pretty a pretty high level of um, of welfare. But, Sen says, if we're egalitarians, we should be concerned with what Tiny Tim can do with his life and what he can do with goods. So we should provide him with a wheelchair. He should have the capability of moving around, uh, uh, being mobile, and so on. Cohen agrees with this, but he thinks that it matters, and it matters in addition to what Sen says, that Tiny Tim not only be able to move around, but also to being around to move painlessly. So it's not just um, what people can do with goods that matters, but it's also what people, what goods do to people that matters. And we should try to incorporate both the welfareist and the capabilitarian dimension of concern in one metric, which Cohen calls um, advantage. Thank you. Um very helpful kind of elucidation of that. And now there's kind of an, a third dimension of, of a theory of distributive justice, and that is what the site of justice is to be. Um, right. And here you trace um, and further kind of develop a, a very interesting move that Cohen makes, and that is to kind of take off from the feminist insight that the personal is political to end up in a critique of Rawls um, uh, regarding the proper site of justice. So could you perhaps uh, trace us through those steps that Cohen makes? Sure, yeah. So um, Rawls, Rawls is this, Rawls's political philosophy, Rawls's theory of justice, has this uh, famous interpretation of the distinction between public and private. Um, Rawls claims that what he calls the primary subject of justice um, is to be restricted to the basic structure of society. So 
the basic structure of society is it's fundamental, uh, publicly accessible and observable institutional features. And so Cohen, what Cohen does is effectively he, um, again, through an imminent critique, he tries to show that Rawls's delineation of this distinction, basic versus non-basic structure, is completely arbitrary. Um, and he does this by appropriating, as you said, the, the feminist slogan, the personal is political. So roughly, Cohen's uh, criticism of Rawls goes as follows. He says, Cohen asks, which aspects of society fall under what Rawls calls the basic structure? Does do non-coercive institution Institutions such as the family come under the purview of the basic structure? The answer that Rawls gives in a kind of half-hearted half way is, yeah, well, the family affects um, the distribution of burdens within between men and women, for example. So, sure, the, the, the family does come under the basic structure. But if that is the case, then Rawls finds himself in a slippery slope because now he cannot exclude certain things that he ostensibly wants to exclude, like things like uh, even more uh, uh, instances of personal or non-coercively enforced or non-coercively enforceable uh, personal behavior. So um, what Cohen ends up doing here is say that Rawls's um, delineation of the basic structure is arbitrary and that by implication a just society is one that would have not just justice in its institutions but also justice in citizens. A just society would as a necessary condition require an ethos of justice in citizens uh, who would behave according to the demands of justice, and this follows on Rawls's own terms. So again, this is um, Cohen's uh, imminent critique, an imminent argument in full swing, and it's very damaging to uh, the Co to uh, to Rawls's edifice, I think. Certainly, and now uh, one thing that you note, kind of towards the end of the third chapter is that there are some tensions in Cohen's thought between his egalitarianism and his theory of justice on the one hand and his Marxism on the other. Could you perhaps map out some of those tensions for us? Yes. Well, Cohen, as I said, um, in the 1990s, Cohen's Marxism goes in, in the background. In fact, Cohen himself spent a lot of time criticizing his earlier views without abandoning Marxism strictly, but um, criticizes his views of, of Marx and his reconstruction of Marx's theory of history in, in a number of occasions. Um, but what's especially striking, and I'm, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book, but it's interesting that very few people have actually uh, seen this, 
which is that Cohen's early work um, attaches explanatory primacy to material features of society, the relations of production, or more importantly, the productive forces. But now in Cohen's later work, there's a kind of explanatory inversion. That is, it's ethos and spiritual phenomena, like people's uh, dispositions to equality, for example, or hegemony, if you want to use a Gram Gramscian term, that come, come to seem to be in the driving seat as opposed to material features. And this, this kind of tension in his early work, fo the focus on the explanatory primacy of, on the, uh, of the material, as opposed to in his later work, the explanatory primacy or what seems to be the explanatory primacy of the spiritual, this tension is never really d resolved in Cohen's work or by Cohen, partly because, as I said in the beginning, he wasn't concerned with building a unified structure. It was more um, ad hominem, the kinds of uh, debates he was interested in. Right, and I'm going to, for for time purposes, perhaps skip over chapter four, although I would mark for, for the listeners that there's uh, both a kind of fascinating um, explication of Cohen's account of exploitation against the way that some Marxists use the labor theory of value to mm -hmm. explain exploitation, and then also a very kind of thoughtful, incisive critique by you of the way that Cohen sometimes links justice and exploitation. So um, I'd mark that yep. those, that's, that's uh, kind of two very, very important and very interesting aspects of chapter four. And now if we turn then to chapter five instead, and so whereas in the third chapter on equality, you note these kind of tensions with his Marxism, when it comes to the issue of community in chapter five, you note some parallels between Marx and Cohen. Right. Yeah, so what's happening here is that uh, Cohen, in his um, later work, especially, well, so Cohen published, Cohen's last pub published work is a little essay entitled uh, Why Not Socialism. It was published in September 2009, one month after Jerry passed. And so that book enunciates a kind of ideal, ideal community and attempts to figure out what kind of social relations we would want to uh, engage in if we were producing together. So how, in what, what communal structure would joint production uh, require if we were to produce together treating one another as human beings. Um, and Cohen claims that it would be, it would have the structure that, pro our, that production within the context of, a, of a, uh, an egalitarian community of human beings would look more like a world, like a well-ordered camping trip than like a capitalist workhouse. And so the notion of community that comes to the fore here is, as you point out, similar to a lot of things that Marx says in Capital, but also in his, um, his early writings, especially uh, the texts, uh, the Paris manuscripts and the 
um, the comments on James Mill. Um, and Cohen, Cohen's um, uh, exegesis of these, these forms of community is that, um, is, is consists in what he calls uh, communal reciprocity. So communal reciprocity is this ideal in which people um, serve one another uh, and are in turn, in turn served, but not through the motives uh, of fear and greed. Fear and greed, in Cohen's opinion, is a dominant motivating feature of capitalist social relations, um, and uh, it is an abhorrent feature of our, our motivational landscape, as it were, and um, a truly communal society, a society that valued egalitarianism within the context of community, a form of flourishing in community with others, would get rid of fear and greed. And it, in order to do that, it would have to get rid, rid of at least some forms of market relations. Right. And so if that's kind of one track that the, that the argument in Chapter 5 is running on. Another is kind of re-engaging the debate between Cohen and Rawls. It seems to me that there are perhaps also some resonances between the way Cohen critiques Rawls on the question of the site of justice and the development mm -hmm. of this notion of uh, the need for some sort of ethos or orientation to justice. Mm -hmm. And then his critique of Rawls when it comes to issues of community or fraternity. Right, yeah. So you're right that there's a well, there's at least two strands in Cohen's account of community. One is what I just explained, the account of communal reciprocity, and another is again this imminent uh, critique of Rawls, not this time on uh, Cohen on sorry on Rawls's delineation of the basic structure, but rather on Rawls's um, explicit claims to the effect that his theory of justice um, expresses a form of fraternity. And what Cohen does here is effectively he, um, he keeps pulling Rawls to the left. So he keeps nagging Rawls to explicate and further uh, develop his account of equality. And Cohen very clearly and, in my opinion, brilliantly brings out a kind of ambiguity in Rawls's theory of equality. Um, so Cohen says, Cohen tries to show that um, certain forms of equality that Rawlsian liberalism tends to tolerate, such as, for example, uh, the inequalities that are due to differences in talent, uh, cannot be sustained by Rawls's own lights. So the the talented person who asks for a higher rate of return in the market um, without uh, being willing to increase his contribution for the benefit of, um, of the less well-off is relevantly, thinks Cohen, like the kidnapper who says to, um, to the parents of the child he has abducted that, you know, children should be with their parents. Uh, unless you pay me, I won't return your child, so you should pay me. Um, Cohen maintains that this incentives kind of, uh, this incentive structure is similar to the structure of 
um, markets in which talented people ask for very high rewards without um, accepting that they will pay a significant part um, in terms uh, as as taxes. And this follows by Rawls's own lights, by Rawls's own commitments. Right, and thank you for that. And and the, the final chapter of the book. Uh, titled Socialism in the Market. And here there are a number of kind of interesting aspects at work. One is, is a critique of markets in general, but also Cohen's critique of market socialism. And then also you trace his argument for planning. Uh, but perhaps rather than asking you to kind of get into the nitty gritty of each of those arguments, um, I was hoping you maybe would uh, perhaps speculate as to kind of the importance of turning to Cohen socialism or to Cohen more broadly in kind of current political and economic conditions as a way to kind of start to conclude the interview. Yes. Um, well, the, the, the last chapter of the book is the most speculative one because it tries to bring together different strands of Cohen's political thought together uh, and see what comes out of them. And Cohen has a number of distinct critiques of the market, of commodification, the commodification of uh, labor power, and so on. Uh, I think there's there's numerous strands that might be worth uh, thinking about here, but perhaps the most important has to do with the connection between um, equal egalitarianism or equality and community in Cohen's later work and especially this notion of communal reciprocity, that markets of necessity um, compel people to see one another either as sources of enrichment or as um, possible threats to their own well-being. And insofar as Cohen is right about that, um, there's an important... Lacuna, if you like, in contemporary political thought that are attempting to, to buttress and understand this set of values. Now, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, contemporary stuff and uh, situation we found, find ourselves in today, I think the most useful takeaway, take-home messages from Cohen's political philosophy are his ad hominem critiques. So the ad hominem critique of um, Isaiah Berlin, stuff on money that we mentioned, the discussion of private property uh, and how privatization, privatizing, privatizing stuff just diminishes people's liberty, at least on the negative conception of liberty. Uh, and if it does not, if liberty isn't about um, being liable to interfere to interference, but rather it's about what rights we have, then we need to be told more about what these rights are. And Cohen has, uh, along with many egalitarians, a theory of um, what the just distribution of stuff is supposed to be. Uh, and also his imminent critiques of, um, uh, of roles, which I think um, will stand the test of time as a kind of uh, left critique of liberalism. Thank you. Now, but before we say 
goodbye. I was wondering if perhaps there's there's anything we didn't get the chance to cover um, in our conversation that you'd like to highlight for the listeners. I I don't think so. Um, I, I what I I would like to mention point out is for people who are, are interested in political philosophy or learning it or students in political philosophy and so on. Um, I couldn't think of a better teacher, but also of a better teacher in the sense that someone whose writings um, would can help you understand what a debate is about, but also how to do and write political philosophy. I mean, the, the guy was a model of clarity and um, intellectual integrity. Um, and so even if people, even people who disagree with him, I think will find much in Cohen's work that will help them both understand more things about uh, political philosophy, but also develop their own way of thinking and writing about these things. No, I, I would certainly second that, and it's uh, that kind of analytical rigor, uh, both in Cohen's work and your own, certainly shines through in the, in the book. Um, so I'll ask you now the, the traditional concluding question of the podcast, and that is, uh, what are you currently working on? Um, well, uh, I'm during my time at Princeton, I'm writing a book. I'm here to write a book on exploitation. So I'm writing a book tentatively entitled um, How Exploiters Dominate. And it's about the connection between exploitation and power. Uh, and it's relevant in a sense to what um, what the Cohen book did uh, because this book is a kind of attempt to, com to complete my parasite, as it were, that is uh, to completely move the debate on exploitation away from stuff on uh, unfairness and distributive justice and more in the di and put it plant it more firmly in the direction or in the in the in the landscape of um, power domination uh, and cognate ideas and concepts all right well thank you for that and nicholas thank you so much for joining us on new books in global ethics and politics thanks very much it's been a great pleasure